We're back on Date with the Night, and I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, Dave One of Chromio. How are you, Dave? I'm good. How are you guys? Great. It's really cool to be speaking to you. You're the first musician to come on the pod, and we've been talking over Instagram for a while now, and you gave me that great opportunity to curate a playlist for your new label, Juliet Records, so thank you for that. You're so welcome, and yeah, you've been doing God's work here on the internet, so it was my pleasure. Thank you so much. And 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 by God, I mean Carl's. <laughs> Carl's of Hipster Runoff? <laughs> yes. He should create a new account, something like that, to kind of make his comeback. Now's the time with the whole Grimes debacle. So yep. let's actually start off by talking a bit about Juliet Records. What was the inspiration behind starting your own label with P-Thug? A very un-Indie Sleeves question, by the way. Sorry. Um, but I'm sure, I'm sure we'll <laughs> circle back to Webster Hall and Cinespace in, in no time. I guess, you know, after being around for a little bit over 15 years, P and I wanted to create a platform where we could empower and co-sign and support other artists. We actually thought about it a little bit before the lockdown, but it, it ended up making sense even more during the lockdown. And we're huge fans of classic indie era artist-driven labels like DFA, for instance, where you had like the studio and the producers that gave it an in-house sound. And I love Soul Wax's label as well, Dewey, they're one of my favorite labels. You know, I already started Fool's Gold and I'm one of the owners of Fool's Gold with A-Track and I wanted to do like a sister label to Fool's Gold that was more concentrated around funk and like jazz and soul and something where the music is a little more, I don't say mature, but, you know, maybe a little more refined than just like dance floor bangers, like we've put out on Fool's Gold over the years. And also kind of an incubator where P&I could foster new talent that we believe in or invite people to come to our studio and work out of our studio, stuff like that. And then because I'm like a graphic design and a branding nerd Juliet is a space for me to like expand and experiment in that territory as well. I love that. I'm actually a bit curious. How did you come up with the name Juliet Records? My dad. It's a dad joke, like Chromeo and Juliet. Oh, I love that. It reminds me of how you kind of came up with the name Chromeo, right? Like you were playing with the word chrome and uh, you had someone mention to you uh, chromium and then you thought of Chromeo because- No, no, that's not true. No? Oh gosh. Okay, well, correct me then. Tell me the real story. This is some urban legend. It came to me in a dream. I woke up and I had the name. And I was like, Chrome plus Romeo, great. It's like robotic and it's romantic. And like our first song that we ever wrote as Chromeo, Mercury Tears, from our unlistenable first album, She's in Control. And I disagree, but <laughs> love that album. It is kind of like now I look back at it really fondly, but Mercury Tears was about sort of like a sad, love-torn robotic voice. So it was like the Chrome and the Romeo. That's really what it was. But it, it came to me in morning at 10 a.m. I called P and then we had the name. That's amazing. I love it. That came to you in a dream. That's the best thing. Or like kind of like in a dream or in like a morning half awake state. 
Yeah, that's so good. I always say pay attention to your dreams. That's like your subconscious telling you something that you really need to kind of figure out. For sure. I can't wait to see everything that comes out of this. I loved seeing Blue to Tiger in your studio recently. As you know, I'm a huge fan of hers and I've been learning yes. bass over the pandemic and she's been a big inspiration. I'm not quite good enough to pull off any chromio bass lines. I've tried, but <laughs> it's not quite at my learning level yet. You could play old 45s because it's just two notes. Boom, 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 boom. Boom, boom. That's boom, true. Boom, 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 boom. You could probably do that. That's my next song. And I'm going to send you my uh, a video of me rehearsing it and you can tell me where I can improve. Well, no, we can't. You can't do an admin reveal. That's true. I, if it's a private video over DM with a non replay, re, no replay enabled. That's true. We're trying to stay anonymous you here, should. keeping the mystery, yes. kind of like Carl's That's from right. uh, Hipster right. Runoff. You, you know, it's the same yes, deal. You have to. So you've been in the industry for 15 years, a little over uh -huh. 15 years now, and Chromio's debut album was released in 2004. What was it like as a musician coming up around the age of internet culture and the MySpace era? The crazy thing is we came up before that. Mm -hmm. I think we joined MySpace in 05, but like we signed our deal in like 03 or 02, but we signed our deal with Turbo which is like a great seminal techno label out of Montreal, uh, helmed by Tiga. But we signed the deal before we, we had any music and before we had any kind of like idea of what Chromio was going to be. So it took two years for us to even figure out what this music was going to be like and to like start experimenting and noodling and picking up our instruments again for the first time since high school. So the crazy thing was like, we saw the change with the internet. When we started, I'll never forget this conversation. Like Tiga was like, don't worry. It's all going to feel real when the first vinyl comes out. I was like, okay. So basically that means that like once you have physical product and it's reviewed in print magazines, it's going to start feeling real, which is sounds like, you know, it's from another century. When the video for Needy Girl came out, I don't think YouTube existed. Yeah. Basically what helped us from the beginning was Kaza and LimeWire. Because people were like finding our demos or our, our unreleased stuff on there and like downloading it. But we really saw a change when MySpace happened. And all of a sudden, between MySpace and all the blogs, our music spread like crazy. I'll never forget this. Like early 2007, we did a remix for Feist because she was living in Paris and I was living in Paris. And Fancy Footwork had, hadn't come out yet, but I was finishing that album and we did a remix for her. And my manager at the time called me and was like, your Feist remix is all over the blogs. And I was like, what does that even mean? I don't even know what that means. Like, I, I truly don't know what that means. Is that cool? Is that a thing? That was how I found your music was through that remix on a blog. <laughs> See, there you go. <laughs> so in a way, like when Fancy Footwork came out, it was all teed up within the blogosphere and the blog houseosphere and the MySpace world. So it was cool that we really saw that change. And I mean, I feel like it's one of the greatest eras in modern music because of the lawlessness. Mm -hmm. Music was basically pirated and free between roughly, I'd say, 1999 and 2016, right? Yeah. And I think that when music historians look back in 20, 40 years or whatever, that's going to seem like a blip, right? Because now like music is monetized in a way that's so secure and guaranteed 
that you have people selling their catalogs for huge multiples because the income from music is it's steadier than real estate. Like for real, it's more, it's steadier and easier to project than real estate. Mm -hmm. But there was this little blip in time in history where music was completely free, where nobody sold or sales did not matter. And you had, on the one hand, in the hip hop urban world, you had mixtapes and Little Wayne and 50 Cent blowing up on mixtapes. And then on the other hand, you had the electronic music world and the indie rock world where people were getting signed off of blogs and off of MySpace and off of word of mouth and music was being shared and downloaded and posted all over the place. And I think we'll look back at that and see it as an era of incredible freedom. It's one of the reasons why I think it was so special. And looking back, it's like a lot of those bands, they didn't sell a ton of records, but they became talked about because the blogs were posting about them and all these indie tastemakers were championing them. And it's amazing because today stats are such a huge part of the conversation. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But like when Bad for Lashes came out with Daniel, I, I don't know why I just thought about that song, but it's like crazy, incredible song. Love that song. Nobody was looking at, you know, oh, did it get a playlist or how much did it streams or what's Bad for Lashes' monthly listener? It was just like great video, great song, love Bad for Lashes. And by the way, like what else matters? So it's, it's so pure, right? It was a brief time where independent artists had many opportunities to grow an organic fan base without necessarily having to rely on a label per se. Do you see anything on the horizon that could indicate a rebalancing of power for independent artists? I mean, I know you want me to say Web3. You don't have to say Web3. <laughs> it's definitely one of the things thrown out there here yeah, quite often. It is. But and there's rumblings between Web3 between the return of physical, but even that, it's like now that everybody's pressing vinyl, indie artists have like a nine, 10 month turnaround on vinyl because you got this huge Billie Eilish order that's taken up all the pressing plants. So even that has become a huge logistical nightmare for indie labels in the past couple of years. And it's nothing against Billie Eilish, by the way. Yeah. Talking about like artists like her, it's nothing to do with her personally. She's amazing. I don't know. I mean, you had the Kanye thing. And his stem player, which again, you'll have like a return of some kind of physical thing. I've been really getting into CDs lately. I forgot how dope CDs are. Yeah. I'm the only guy on Discogs buying CDs. I'm buying mad CDs on Discogs <laughs> I because it's stuff that. that I can't find on streaming platforms. Like Rough Trade presents Electronica Volume 2, and it's so cool. I don't want to sound too pessimistic. You'd have to really sell me on the Web3 thing. And I, I really pray that this will happen because smart contracts and the remuneration techniques on Web3 are really encouraging. And you could talk to former Bloghouse remixer, now turned Web3 innovator, Rack, R-A-C, because he's really, really in the Web3 space. And he's kind of like a visionary when it comes to that. Remixed Bonafide Lovin', by the way, uh, back in the day. But anyways... Asian Dan, who's a huge indie blog house blogger. I don't know if you remember the blog Asian Dan. Yeah, I do. And he's coming on the pod next week. Great. Dear, dear friend of mine. And he once said, the internet betrayed us. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't want to be too pessimistic, but like when you think about how cool it was at first to connect with people on Friendster, Facebook, MySpace, 
to discover music on SoundCloud, to discover music on MySpace, on blogs, downloading remixes on Fluo Kids, pirating music, sharing music, you know, all of that, the freedom that came with that, the freedom of decentralized journalism. By the way, that's called a blog. Yeah. You know, blogs really decentralized media. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, Condé Nast owns Pitchfork, right? So like big corporations regained control of everything. And now the internet is the place where, you know, misinformation is spread and, and the democratic process is undermined. Yeah. And music on the internet is like very much controlled by one platform in particular that pays $0.007 per stream mm-hmm. or less, I think, actually. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. like, in my ideal world, Grizzly Bear deserves Grammy for best album. Oh, for you know sure. What I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. That's really my favorite music. And it's the music that I still romanticize. So maybe I'm a little pessimistic, but, you know, at the same time, like we adapt. And as long as the music is pure and, you know what I'm saying? Like there's still yeah. amazing artists that come up and, and maybe I'm just old and I should be looking at TikTok <laughs> the way you looked at MySpace. But like, TikTok is like a 15 to one minute clip. Like it's not the yeah. whole song. And it's like, it's weird to think that like going viral on TikTok is being 15 to 30 second background music while somebody else is dancing. Like, yeah. you know what I'm saying? It's definitely a way to discover new artists, but for sure. the payout for that remains to be seen what Correct. that necessarily guarantees. You're right. It's a great way to discover new artists. And also I love the randomness of TikTok. Yeah. So I love that someone like a super indie artist. I mean, I don't know in, in what label her situation is, but like in spirit, like Mitski mm-hmm. can basically delete all the apps from her phone, go into hibernation, become a TikTok sensation unbeknownst to her, and then come back and put out an album that's like in the top 10 best-selling releases of that week. You know, like I love that. Yeah. But I wish it happened to you know, 25 artists at the same time. Because like in the blog era, there was like a story like that every other week. It was like, wait a minute. Like, I mean, that was MGMT. Yeah. It was like, what? Like Passion Pit is selling out the garden? Cool. Like Feist is blowing up off of like one, two, three, four because of an iPod. It was just different. You know what I'm saying? Like there were even more unlikely success stories that were really heartwarming. Yeah, it was a very cool time for music exploration. I really am thankful mm-hmm. for growing up during that time and yeah. having, you know, Casa and LimeWire and blogs and, yeah. you know, just being able to discover all these different types of music that maybe I wouldn't have found before had I not had these tools. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But the point that I want to drive home, because I don't want to sound like the old head who thinks everything was better before. <laughs> you don't, you don't. But yeah, I get you. <laughs> and I listen to all the new music that comes out. I consume it voraciously. Yeah. And I love new artists. I'm as passionate about it now as I was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. But the only thing I'll say that was cooler about the era we're talking about is that it was illegal and unregulated. Yes. And that's what I love. It's like we're going to look back at this era as total unregulated, illegal chaos. And that's coming from me. I'm supposed to be the artist who cries because people pirate my music. No way. I wish it would start tomorrow again and everybody would pirate music. I love it. We found other ways to make money. We found other income. 
And it was the big corporations that suffered. And since when do we have any sympathy for those people anyway? Yeah. Well, the reason why we're also discussing this is not necessarily to say that, yeah, that time was better, but because we want new artists to be able to generate income from their work and from their artistry and be able to have a career that sustains them. So that's why it's also important to, you know, listeners, go and see your favorite bands, go and see your local bands, try out a new- Buy vinyl, buy merch. Yes. Bandcamp is great. I mean, I hope- their recent acquisition isn't going to change yeah. things, but it's one of the last really, really pure marketplaces for music where artists get paid directly. So I love, 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 love Bandcamp. And even, you know, a lot of artists have like, you know, Patreon kind of systems where you can engage with them directly and have your kind of, it's like almost like paid fan clubs that where the artist is, directly compensated so i think all of that is is amazing but you know i'm about to go to the strokes show tonight and i remember an interview where julian casablancas was like ariel pink should be as big as i forget who he said like harry styles or whatever you know what i'm saying yeah yeah and in the indie era we had that impression like more people talked about interpol then they talked about nickelback yeah even though nickelback was selling 20 times more records than interpol interpol was more important and in my worldview, Interpol is more important. And that was because there were so many independent tastemakers that were championing stuff, even though it wasn't on radio, on MTV, on a billboard, on Times Square. You know, it was just like, yo, this is dope. Arcade Fire, perfect example. By the way, Arcade Fire opened for us on their first tour. Yes. They were first out of three. The first, the headline act was the Unicorns. The second act was us. The third act was Arcade Fire. Talk about an indie three-headed monster. But, you know, Arcade Fire blew up like that too. Like word of mouth, blogs, everything. And then the success and the record sales and the accolades only confirmed what word of mouth was already circulating. So that means that all these little kids with indie haircuts, they were right. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? They were right all along. They knew it. Yeah. And even this is mentioned in Lizzie Goodman's Meet Me in the Bathroom. There's a section of the book where it talks about, I think it was before Interpol's album Antics. I think that's the one where a fan had come up to the lead singer and just said, you know, I love this song off your album. And he was like, wait, what? This album hasn't been released yet. And there was this worry that it might interfere with sales of the album, but it still did very well. And they still made lots of money. Like it was just a new way of like building an audience. So I remember we had that at Fool's Gold. Fool's Gold put out the first Run to Jewels album for free. Yeah. Then we put it out as physical and it sold. And my brother was like, dude, I just discovered that all the music that we're putting out for free sells once we put it on sale too. You know, this was mentioned in Lena Baskell's book, Never Be Alone Again, which you're mentioned in. And at the end of chapter three, she discusses this, that you didn't have to necessarily have a website. You could just have a MySpace page and you could still build this huge momentum around your music shared on blogs. And, you know, that night, the DJs at the club already spinning some song that you just released. It's special. Like, things talk back. There's a reason why when you started that page, everybody freaked out. (laughs) And everybody is freaking out. And people are tagging you and submitting stuff. Yeah. It's because you tapped into a nerve, which brings back really good memories for a lot of people. And it's a vibe that encompasses carefree party energy, And, you know, an era before social media, there's something there, Yeah, you know? Otherwise, like, people wouldn't have reacted the way they do to your thing. 
Thank you. It definitely, you know, it's very celebratory. There's a lot of joy in uh, the media and art from around this time. And I think that also, you know, in a post-pandemic world, like... True. I never even thought about it like that. You're right. Yeah. People want to have fun. They want to go and reconnect with friends or family and go to parties and have experiences and go to concerts and make up for lost time. And a lot of the photography from that time is very celebratory. It's people having fun and living in the moment. And I love the point my girl made about it. My, as you know, my fiance is she's also graduating class of indie sleaze. Yes. I followed her Tumblr. It was amazing. She's just phenomenal. She's just beautiful. She's got great style and she's so smart. And yeah, you're a dream team. <laughs> <laughs> An indie sleaze royal couple. She made a good point and she was like, you know, there was also a lot of drugs mm-hmm. and a lot of I mean, a lot of young kids in the club mm-hmm. off their shit. A lot of ecstasy. Yeah. A lot of you know, there's a lot of sleaze. And, you know, this was before Me Too, right? It was like a long time before Me Too. So I think that for some people, the memories might be a little creepy as well. There are certainly people that send me stories. They're like, this was a dark time for me. And, you know, they were underage and in the clubs and getting up to God knows what. But I think it's cool that you acknowledge that. And I think in this cultural history you're doing, there's probably going to be a space to acknowledge those stories and to respect those experiences as well. because. As with everything, it's nuanced. It has to be nuanced. Yeah, and I always try to be respectful on my page. And if there are younger people who are going to be picking up on this trend, I want them to have fun with it while staying safe and responsible. If you're going to glamorize anything about this era, make it about the music or the low-res MP3s. Speaking of which, I think it's cool that you were the exception to the rule in regards to the 128 kilobytes per second MP3s that dominated this era. Chromio has always had a more high-res, sleek sound, and your recent album, Head Over Heels, received a Grammy nomination for Best Engineered Album. You know, I actually cut a lot of trailers for movies and TV, so I spend a lot of time in studios across Toronto, and Chromio comes up so often when I talk to audio engineers and ask them what one of their favorite groups are and an example of how to best engineer an album. You're so highly celebrated in Toronto. <laughs> That's cool. It's funny because when I told, I remember calling Ezra, you know, Ezra from Vampire, who is like one of my closest friends. And when I told him about the Grammy nomination, the category, he was like, That's amazing. It's so appropriate. Like the nerdiest, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. The nerdiest category. But I love that. Yeah. I mean, we're still learning, but I had the great late Philip Zadar mix two of my albums and a couple songs off She's in Control. This is the guy that gave us Listomania. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like he was he was the greatest ever. Um, I, I'm about to tear up because I miss him so much. Yeah. But you were saying that our music was an anomaly or something? That exception to the 128 kilobytes per second kind of MP3s that were dominating, you had this very clean, tight, just like production. It was just so like, uh, just phenomenal. And it's not that that other music wasn't good either. It was just a different kind of mix yes. and, and vibe. So. Yes. so Fancy Footwork came out the same year as Justice's seminal cross album. Their album was very bit crushed. And we came out with a super slick, you know, dripping in reverb sound that had all this sheen and like saxophone solos and all that. That was our vibe because we were on, you know, we still are like we're a funk band and in our minds, it's like Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and Quincy Jones, you know, Yeah. but the drums got a bang. Philip Zadar was always like, he always said like, my formula when I mix a Chromio record is Quincy Jones, but make the drums techno. Yes. We were always outliers. And I think that what happened is that between 
2003, 4, 5, and 2006 and 7, the indie kids decided to dance. Yes. Because I'm telling you, when we opened for Block Party in the UK, the week that Silent Alarm came out, Block Party loved us and they, they're the ones who chose us. But the crowds, if we were playing in Sheffield, I could hear the cricket in Manchester. Yeah. And even when we opened for like Unicorns or certain other very indie bands in that era, the crowds weren't feeling us. They didn't understand funk. But then in like the magical mix of Justice, Claxons, MGMT, Cut Copy, whatever, rock indie kids wanted to dance. Yeah. And then we came back playing the same music, by the way. We didn't change. But all of a sudden, everybody was dancing. So I was like, great, no problem. And that was the shift that happened. Thank God. The amazing thing about the photos from that era is everybody's sweaty. Yeah. You notice that? Everyone's yes. covered in sweat because they're dancing, you know? Yes. I went to four of your shows probably during this era. You actually played a few free shows here in Toronto. One night I was working and I like had to call in sick. I was like, I can't miss Chromio. So it's That's like- what's up. You got to come to the next ones. Then. I will. We, what? I will. We did two nights. Last tour, we did two nights at Danforth Music Hall, I think. And it was yes. dope. And, and it's actually really amazing to see our fan base- like, obviously, when we had Jealous on the radio in Canada, like going crazy, there was a lot of new fans and very young fans that came along. But every time we play a show, it's also dope to see fans of ours that have grown with us mm -hmm. and who are now sometimes their young parents or their people who now have a career who discovered us in college. And like our show is the one date night with wifey where they're going to get down and like sweat again. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. And I, I love seeing that. And I love the stories that I hear of like, man, I discovered you guys in college. Like you said, I went to five shows and now it's like they have a job somewhere doing something really cool that's kind of very often tied into the internet. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like a generation that grew up with the internet ends up working in and around the internet. I don't know. It's this heartwarming thing. And P and I are overcome with gratitude that maybe we still have a place in your life, you know, or, or in other people's lives. Like, I don't know you personally, but I hope you personally. But yeah. like, no, people, definitely me like, personally. <laughs> that, that, well, then, then you or others like you still carved out a place for us in your life. You know, I'm super grateful for that. What are your go-to mix references in terms of engineering? Because you have such slick, polished, high fidelity sound. I'm going to say this and I don't even know those dudes. Okay. So this is not me bigging up my friends the people whose sonics and engineering I hear and I, I'm like, fuck, Solax. Yes, Solax. I thought you might say that. They're the only people that scare me. And I, I, again, I don't know them like that. One day I hope to get a remix from them or visit their studio in Ghent. A lot of other people inspire me, but on the sonics level, they're phenomenal. Well, your albums do that for me too, so. Our last album, Head Over Heels, we wanted to make the biggest sounding, cleanest sounding, most like Los Angeles album possible. And I'm glad that the Grammy, the Recording Academy noticed. Like, it was crazy. The mastering guy was calling me like, bro, I can't go louder. And I was like, oh, yes, you can. And we weren't distorting. We didn't just, I mean, I'm proud of what we did, but my new album's not going to sound like that. Our new album's going to sound way more warm and there's going to be dirtier sounding stuff like that was what we did on head over heels you know but we're going to go somewhere different sonically with the new thing how do you and people kind of split up the work in terms of creative process like how do your skill sets complement each other well 
I'm really lucky that my best friend from high school is still someone I talk to every day and is someone with whom the creative process isn't fixed. And so there's songs where P starts the music and I come in and I edit and I'll come up with melodies on top and we finish it together. There's songs where I just bring in a melody and P and I together find chords to it and then figure out what drums are going to go to it and build everything together. There's songs where he made a musical demo, I wrote something to it, and then we take the music out and write something and together create all kinds of other music. Like it changes and like we can both take turns at the computer. Like sometimes I'll be at driving, quote unquote is what we use, and sometimes he'll be driving. So it's cool because there's never one thing. P's a bass player and an amazing guitar player, but there's songs where I play bass, you know? Mm -hmm. In general, I don't really touch the keys much, the keyboards. That's really his thing. And in general, I'm more melody and lyrics, of course, and he's more like harmony. So like chords and chord progressions, but like we both police each other. So like if I sing something, he's like, dude, this is corny. Then like I'd scrapped. Or if he comes up with stuff and I'm like, oh, I don't know, bro then it's scrapped. We both have veto power over each other. And there was never, ever a time where one of us pushes the other and, and forces the other to accept something. It never happens. It's got to be unanimous. Yeah, you both have such beautiful chemistry together whenever I watch interviews. I'm lucky. I'm so lucky. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it's also work and there's moments of tension and we fought a lot over the years, but we're like a couple. We're going to work at it. And at the end of the day, we love making music together. Like he's coming to New York next week. He's working on demos right now in LA. And I'm like, bro, send me something, please. I want to write tonight, please. Like I still have that feeling. We've been doing this since 2004. I still have that feeling. I'm lucky. He better say he's lucky. He probably won't. <laughs> I'm sure I'm he would too. Just by We're lucky to have each other, you know. You've mentioned in the past that you kind of mix these high and low brow elements in your music, yeah. having yes. niche references for the music nerds and critics to chew on while yes. establishing this overall sound that is accessible to a wide audience. Yes, the most important. What are some other artists or bands that do this well, in your opinion? The Beastie Boys. The Beastie Boys did it better than anyone, and they're the gold standard for that. You could say, you know, Steely Dan, let's say, mm -hmm. you know, because the lyrics are really esoteric. But the thing is with them, it's kind of just more highbrow. They'll talk about goofy stuff, but it's still more highbrow than lowbrow. The Beasties is who taught me. Yeah. Actually, I've been buying issues of Grand Royal magazine on eBay. That was their magazine. I'm like a child of those guys, you know, those yeah. guys were the Beatles for me. And they were the kings of that, the highbrow, lowbrow. They invented that. So the esoteric music nerds found something, and then the goofball skater kids like me found something. A lot of hip hop works like that, because if you're a linguist or a literature scholar, you could study a little Wayne verse and probably find a lot of substance. And also, when hip hop was more sample based, you had like, oh my God, this sampled Roy Ayers deep cut from 1976. So you had something for the nerds. But then the lyrical content could have just been like some cool, ignorant shit. So I think hip hop really taught us that in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that was the music we listened to growing up. So between the beasties and hip hop and skate culture, those cultures like really taught us how to mix highbrow and lowbrow. Oh, and I forgot too. 
biggest influence on Chromio, one of the biggest is ZZ Top. Yes. You know, you could tell P and I are like, we're trying to be the ZZ Top of funk. <laughs> and, and they're a huge influence on our artwork too. So they are also the kings of highbrow, lowbrow. I love ZZ Top, but you have all these 80s references in your music. And I've heard you mention in interviews before that it was kind of divisive. Of course. Because like nobody liked Black 80s music at first in the days of Fisher Spooner and LCD Losing My Edge. The 80s references were like Kraftwerk, Gary Newman, Joy Division. But we came out, our references were Rick James and Hall and Oates. People still were clowning. You know, Hall and Oates were like a mustache mullet joke. And Rick James was a Dave Chappelle meme. Like people didn't take that music seriously. So they clowned. They thought we were joking. Like if you read the reviews up to even our like third album, critics at the times were still debating whether or not we were serious or not. You know what I mean? I guess you were just ahead of the curve because what yeah. I was going to- Because now listen to Dua Lipa. Exactly. It's got that yeah. electro-funk kind of sound to it. What's funny is just a few years later after the release of your debut album, there were so many 80s references in music and it ended up being a style that was also referenced a lot in the aesthetics of the time. And the synth was super popular. Yeah. That was kind of even this joke that the synth was sort of associated with the hipsters. So the 80s ended up being this big trend during the aughts and synths were so popular. So I imagine this might be a hard question, but do you have an all-time favorite synth or is there a synth that helped define chromium? sound. I also want to say, I, I really think like decades are arbitrary. Yes. Obviously, yeah. right? But I think the 80s are the best decade in music because like if you go to any country, I swear I've traveled the world over. And every time I'm in a taxi to go to the airport in the morning and the taxi driver's got like whatever variety radio station playing, it's overwhelmingly 80s music. And then there's Hotel California for the 70s. And there's a couple of songs from the 60s. But like really, like the kind of variety stations across the world, you're getting the police, you're getting Duran Duran, you're getting Phil Collins, you're getting Cool and the Gang, you're getting Lionel Richie, you're getting Michael, you're getting Madonna, you're getting Prince, you're getting Hall and Oates. I'm sorry to say it's the greatest music. Like it really is. It hasn't been topped. Yeah. And yeah, a lot of pop now is 80s funky reference. And I'm so happy that I could listen to like a Dua Lipa record or a Weekend record and be like, oh, dope. And they really give me ideas. Like they legit inspire me. Yeah. Like I'm not the dude who's like, oh my God, we were doing this first. I wasn't doing this first. Prince was doing this first. Yeah. Daft Punk Discovery did it before me. Mm -hmm. And Le Rhythme Digital did it before me. And even Phoenix... Uh, if I ever feel better, did it before me. So like we leaned heavier on like the Jerry Curl Minneapolis sound, sure, but I don't care. I'd rather just feel constantly inspired. I listen to all those pop songs and I find little ideas like always. Even Mitski's new album is very 80s inspired. I can't as wait. Well. I haven't listened to it yet. By the way, we have a song with her. Oh, we sweet. She never came and finished it. I want her to, I have to find her. Yes. She came to a studio in between the two albums and like we started a song. And it was dope, but then we never got around to finishing it. That'd be it was, a really cool collab. I can't wait to hear that. Yeah, it was like some city pop shit. It was cool. But um, wait, you're asking me my all-time favorite synth. For me, it's simple. It's the Juno 106. Oh, yeah. But that's because that synth can do anything. And like when we didn't have many synths, like on Fancy Footwork, we, we had only like five or six that we were using. We have songs like that song 100% or like 
a couple of other songs on that album, it's all Juno 106. So to me, it's the most versatile one because I can make it sound like a move. Like we can make it sound like whatever. It's reasonably priced too. That's a simple one to use. Exactly. It's a good first one to get. The micro Korg is another one I hear often as well. Oh that was... my God. That's the most indie sleaze synth ever. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's what everyone was trading uh-huh. in there. <laughs> uh-huh. There are instruments for that synth. <laughs> that's, right. that's the one. Um, I have to go. Yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry. No, that's okay. We'll finish this up. forever. I know. Um, I mean, maybe we should do part two. We can definitely do a part two. I'd love to have you back. Yes. Because I got to actually go to the Strokes show. That's amazing. That is very indie sleaze of you. And it's I'm so, so indie of me. I'm going <laughs> to comb my hair diagonally to the front. Yes. I'm going to bring back my little square glasses. Drink a Pabst gonna, Blue Ribbon. Ah, you stole it from me. <laughs> Red Stripe will do. I'm going to say fuck George W. Bush. Hell yeah. Um, Hell yeah. But let's do it part two. We have to because this is too much fun. Definitely. It's been so great talking to you today. Thank you so much for coming on the pod and hopefully get to see you perform again soon. And for the listeners, make sure to follow Chromio, Dave One, and Juliet Records on Instagram and Spotify. See you later. See you later. See you later.